Luke 15, starting with verse 11. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the paws that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. And then the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field. When he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. And he replied, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But, the, but he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you. I've never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you were always with me. All that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, open our lips and our mouths shall proclaim your praise. Create in us clean hearts, O God, and renew a right spirit within us. Amen. So in my family, we don't tell jokes. Uh, All we tell is punchlines. And you don't have to tell the whole joke because all you have to tell is the punchline. I can uh, say, please pass the jelly or line in the yard or they've done changed these roads. And anybody in my family will know exactly what I'm talking about and they will burst into riotous laughter. You won't because you don't know the stories. But you probably have something like that in your family where you don't have to tell the whole story. You just tell that little snippet, that little tidbit, and everybody knows the story. Everybody knows just what you're talking about. Jessica's family, I know, has those too. Part of becoming part of her family has been learning uh, those stories, where now, even though I wasn't there for the original event, I can tell uh, the punchline. I can tell the little snippet, and I become part of the story. I know what happened. And even though I wasn't there, um, it's part of my memory as well. You know, in the Christian family, we have stories like that as well. 
And the prodigal son might be the best example. And we've heard this story so many times that all we need is a word or two from it to recall the whole story, or so we think. You know, for example, if I were to say to you to kill the fatted calf, you would likely know that I'm talking about a great celebration with no concerns for how much it might cost. And that phrase has entered into our language from this story. And so too with the name of the parable itself, the prodigal son, or that's the name we usually apply to it. And it's now a stock phrase that we use in conversation. And it recalls for us the entire story. And we apply it to what we see as parallel situations. The person who's gone off, done wrong, wised up, and come home. But the problem, the problem with this is that often we simply think we know what the parable of the prodigal son means. And we don't actually tell the story again ourselves. And the danger of shorthand versions of our stories is that, in fact, we can get it wrong if we haven't told the story in a while, if we haven't remembered the details of the story. You should probably know this intuitively from your own family stories. You know, I can give you a shorthand version of, you know, hey, do you remember the time that dad did X, Y, or Z? And uh, I can tell that again and again and again. And then maybe, maybe sometime we'll actually get down to telling the story and we'll find out that, say, my brother and I don't have the exact same recollection of what actually happened in that event. But it's been a while since we've told the story, and so we haven't reminded each other of the details. And it turns out that maybe the story or the event doesn't mean the same thing to each of us, or maybe we have differing recollections of it. And so with the so-called parable of the prodigal son today, we should watch ourselves. Maybe the shorthand version of the story doesn't do justice to what Jesus is actually saying or what it means for our lives today. Most of the time, I think we've sort of told this story as being about God's response to us when we seek forgiveness for our sins. And we've distilled it down to this phrase, the prodigal son, as if that were the only thing in the story. And now I do think this is a story about God forgiving sins uh, to we, the prodigal sons. But there's much more to the story than God's response to us when we repent. In fact, the story is not mainly about us. It's about God and the way that God's kingdom works. It's a story that doesn't just end with God's love. It's a story that begins and ends with God's love. So let's take a look at this parable itself, this story that we tend to call the parable of the prodigal son. But you know, that's not how Jesus starts it. He doesn't start it by saying, you know, there's a son who went astray. He says, rather, there was a man who had two sons. So, you see, we should already start to realize that calling this the parable of the prodigal son has led us astray. This is a parable about a family, not just one son. And I actually like to call it the parable of the prodigal family. You know, the word prodigal, it doesn't mean what we often assume. Uh, We've heard this story so many times, we tend to think that prodigal means sinful. You know, the sinful son that's come back. But what prodigal actually means is lavish or extravagant or even wasteful. And each of these members of the family is prodigal in his own way. The son goes off and prodigally wastes his father's inheritance. The other son is also prodigal. He lashes out at his father and he wants what's coming to him. And in doing so, he wants to waste his relationship with his father and his brother. But the father is prodigal above all, but this time in a positive sense, because he lavishes love and grace on his wayward sons. 
to Jesus' audience, this family would have been very surprising. To us, it's not surprising. We've heard the story a thousand times. This is the first time that they are hearing this particular story, though, and to them it's surprising because they would have heard it, a deep connection with their own story as Israel and the stories from the Old Testament. You know, like us, they had their, their sort of shorthand way of thinking about their families. Uh, and one of my, my favorite uh, biblical scholars points out that when Jesus in the first century told his Jewish audience this story, when they heard there was a man who had two sons, their minds would have instantly jumped to all of the Old Testament stories of fathers and sons. They would have thought about Cain and Abel. They would have thought those are the sons of Adam. They would have thought about Ishmael and Isaac, the sons of Abraham. They would have thought about Jacob and Esau, Isaac's sons. And they probably might have even thought about Joseph and his 11 brothers. And they might have thought about David and all of his brothers. And you'll notice something in those Old Testament stories. In each, it's the youngest in that story. Or in Joseph's case, the 11th of 12 Who's the hero? It's the younger son who's always the hero. So when Jesus' audience heard there was a man who had two sons, all they have to hear is that, and they know who they're going to root for. You want to root for the younger son. It's the younger son who's going to be the moral exemplar. It's the younger son that you want to take after. You always go for the younger kid. That's how all of the stories pretty much in the Old Testament work. And in fact, Israel thought of itself as sort of a younger brother among the nations. You know, inheritance, especially in ancient cultures, tended to go through oldest sons. So it was the oldest who would be the wealthiest and most powerful. They're the ones who had the power. But Israel saw themselves as being favored by God, not because they were powerful, not because they were the biggest and the strongest or the oldest, but because they weren't. Deuteronomy 7 puts it this way. It is not because you were more numerous than any other people, that the Lord had set his heart on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Israel is the youngest son. Israel's the little brother. Israel is the, is the young uh, person who doesn't have the power, but that God has preferentially chosen. And in Israel's genealogy, it's the younger sons who carry on the family name. Um, that's not how even in our culture it often the assumptions tend to go. But it's the younger son who's favored. But now here's the hitch. Jesus sets up this story of younger sons that are, tend to be favored and draws on this memory. But the younger son here is not worthy at all. The younger son is a jerk. And you read this story, and, and if you're reading it, with the same ears that I am, you read it and you say, I don't like this kid. Uh, I don't like him one bit. He goes to his father and he asks for his inheritance. And, and I think that this is more than just asking for money. Um, some disagree with this interpretation. Others agree with it. I, I think it, I like it. I think it's right. Uh, it's more than just asking for money. When do you get your inheritance? Sometimes you might get it ahead of time. But usually you get your inheritance when your parents die. And so when the son goes to his father and says, give me what's coming to me, it's like he's saying to his father, I wish you were dead. Give me what's coming to me. And then we see him go off and, and, and waste this money. So at the very least, there's something very seriously wrong between this relationship, in this relationship between father and son. The younger son, 
And, you know, the proof's in the pudding. He goes off and he wastes what he's been given. This relationship, something is very wrong. You know, the Greek actually implies here um, that this father, in a sense, granted the son his wish. It says, so he divided his property between them, perhaps in your translation. But the word we translate as property, it's actually a bion. It's from bios. Like some of you might have taken biology at some point. It's life. He divided his life between them. He gave him a portion of his life. So the father says to the son says to the father, I want a portion of your life. Um, and he gives them his life. And you know, the father might have reprimanded the son. He might have said, get your, took us back to the fields. Uh, you know, enough of your nonsense. You need to go back to work. Uh, quit whining. Grow up. I'm not going to give you your inheritance. Be responsible. And God, and perhaps the father could have punished the son. Perhaps he could have punished him and say, oh, okay, you want your inheritance now? Fine. It's going all to your older brother. You know, he, he might have punished him. But the father doesn't do either of those things. He doesn't do either of those things. He lets the son insult him. He lets the son wish he was dead and then go off. And we might say, what kind of father is this who doesn't take responsibility for his son? But in a sense, this is what God does to us. We all have rejected God in some way or another and said to God, I wish you were dead. I'm going to do things my way. I don't need you telling me what to do. I'm going to live the life that I want to live. I'm going to go off and do what I want. Give me what's coming to me. I, want, I still want the things that you're going to give to me, but I'm going to live life my way. But what does God do? God could punish us instantly. He could hold us accountable. He could just say no. But God doesn't do that. God lets us make choices. He lets us make choices that might not be, superficially at least, or initially, the best choices for us. Just like the father lets this younger son make this choice. And this is, you know, sometimes we talk about free will, that we have the, the ability to choose. But I think perhaps what this story suggests to us is that we don't just have free will. The, the choices that we make, it's God's gift to us to be able to make those choices. Because God doesn't want people who are just slaves, who are told what to do and then they do it. He wants people who have a genuine relationship with him. He wants people to be able to choose him through the grace that he gives them to be able to choose. It's God's gift that we are able to choose him or sometimes say no to him. Uh, and it's just like it's the father's gift that this younger son is able to take the actions that he takes. So the younger son finds himself in dire straits from these choices. He goes off, he sells the family property. You know, property in that time was mainly in land and livestock, not money. So he would have sold it for cash. And then uh, he would have gone off to this distant country, taken this cash with him. And then he squanders it until he has nothing. And it's at that point that a famine hits. And desperate to make a living, this son from what must have been a very rich family, uh, they have slaves. Apparently the father has wealth. They seem to be rich. He takes on work as a hired hand. And in fact, his job is at the bottom of the totem pole. He's feeding the pigs. And he's so bad off that he wants to share their food. And this is rock bottom. This is, he's hit rock bottom. He's a Jewish boy. He's not, supposed to, um, he's not supposed to eat pigs and to want to eat what they are eating. I think that tells us that he is in a desperate situation. He's in a desperate situation. 
So this once well-to-do son now has nothing. He's wasted his family, uh, spent the money, and now he's tempted to go against his faith. And Jesus' audience here would have heard something in their own story here, the story of their own country in it, the story of the world as they knew it. And I think it's the story of the world that we live in too. You know, though at first they might have well been surprised that it's the younger son who so badly messes up, they might have realized that they are something like this younger son. They, even though they're not in exile anymore, they're in their own land, they've experienced exile. They've been to Babylon. And even though Persia let them go, they were still under Persia's thumb. And they experienced a brief independence, but now the Roman Empire rules the land that was supposed to be theirs. And so even though they're at home, they're, in a sense, in exile, even in their own land. And so they would have known this as a story of their world that had gone deeply wrong. And I think for us, it's a reminder that our world has gone deeply wrong. That all of us are a part of this going off into a foreign country and wasting what God has given us. And so they would want to know, and I think we should want to know, how this younger son responds. Jesus says that he came to himself. And that's a phrase that should tell us a little something about what sin is, perhaps. Sin is, in a a word, being disassociated from ourselves. It's not being who God created us to be. It's not being who we really are, who God intends us to be. So this younger son has to come to himself. He has to realize that he's not doing, he's not being what God has created him to do and be. But... Jesus doesn't actually say that he repents. He might realize his situation, but it doesn't say that he repents. There's a word for repentance. It's metanoia, and it's not in there. It's not in this story. And perhaps he repents, but we don't know that. We don't know his internal motivations. All we know is uh, what the story tells us about him, which is that he's desperate. And he realizes that in his father's household, even the slaves are eating better than he is. So maybe he can go back and be a slave there. Maybe he can go be a servant there and at least have a decent meal to eat. It looks like he's in it just to save his own skin. But he comes up with this speech. He comes up with this speech. And he says, you know, I'm going to go to my father. I'm going to tell him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And you can just picture him on his way home from this foreign country and he's walking and he's walking and he's walking and this speech is going through his mind and he's rehearsing it father i've sinned against heaven and before you father i've sinned against heaven before you father i've sinned against heaven and before you father father i've sinned against heaven before you and he's just rehearsing it and if you've ever had to apologize to someone and you don't really want to apologize or you had to confess something that you don't really want to confess you might have been like this you might have been driving in the car on the way home and rehearsing this speech in your head and you're thinking, this is, okay, this is what I'm going to say. This is how I'm going to say it. And you're just turning it over and over and over again. And so as, his, as he returns home and, and home is in sight, you know his heart is just beating, beating, beating. And, and he's playing this speech over in his head. And his father sees him in the distance. And before the son can even get out his soul speech, he blushes, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. But the father is rushing towards him and embraces him, and welcomes him home, and welcomes him back. He expected, the son expected to have to make this this speech, but before, the father's not listening to his speech. He doesn't care what he said. All he cares about is that 
he's home and that he's safe and he's sound. And he calls for a celebration and he goes, says, go and kill the fatted calf. Get my robe, get my ring. We're going to celebrate. This is a great day. The son that we thought was dead is alive. And if it hasn't been made clear to us already, maybe it should be here. This is a story about a father's love for his son. It's the father who sprints out to meet the son. It's the father who embraces the son and kisses him. It's the father who calls for the celebration. Yeah, there might be repentance here, but this is mainly about the father's love. And it's the same way that God approaches us. God embraces us in spite of our sins, in spite of whatever internal motivations we might have in returning to him. And it's in fact, whenever we turn back to God, we probably do it with mixed motives. But God welcomes us when, he, when we return. And Christianity isn't a, a pick yourself up by your own bootstraps religion. It's not a religion that says, if you get moral enough and if you do all the right things, then God will love you. It's a story about a father who meets us while we're still on the way, while we still don't have it right. Because the father is the one who has it right. The father longs to run out and to meet us at the slightest suggestion that we are choosing him and responding to his grace. But you know, not all like this message. Uh, Luke tells us that this story is told in part against the tax collector, because tax collectors and sinners were coming to Jesus and some people didn't like it. And they said, well, you know, he's eating with these people who are sinful. Why is he doing this? And Jesus tells this story to say, this is how God is. God wants a relationship with the people who are sinful. And so it's only right, it's only right that God should run out to meet people who still don't have it right, who still haven't gotten their whole lives figured out, who still don't know what it is to really, really understand God. But God knows where they are. God runs out to meet him. God wants a relationship with them. And so this, this story of a questionably repentant son uh, in the filth of a foreign place still on him met with the the reckless, the wasteful almost, the lavish love of the Father. It's shocking. It was shocking to people in Jesus' day, and it's still shocking to many people in our day. Oftentimes, we want to be the gatekeepers. We want to say who should be in and who should be out, who's got it right and who's got it wrong. And of course, there's a place for moral discernment and growth as a Christian. Um, But where we start out, where we meet God, is when we still have the filth of our sin on us still, just like this son. But you know, there's a second part to this story. This isn't just a story of one prodigal son. There's another son as well, and we need to account for him. And it's at this point in the story that the older brother shows up. The party's going on, and he, the older brother shows up, and he gives the response of someone who might have learned a lot of wrong lessons from his faith. And he says, you know, who's this person? Oh, my who's shown back up. What, what is my father doing with him? You know, he's welcomed him back and all he's done is waste my father's money. I've never done anything wrong. Where's my reward? I want what's coming to me. And a lot of times we take that attitude. And the older son, he accuses his father. He says, listen, for all these years, I've been working like a slave for you. And we might notice first, you know, this, this older son, uh, the good boy, the one who stayed home and worked hard, 
He's forgotten his sirs and ma'ams. Right? He's already disrespectful toward his father. He's just, listen up. You know, you've done this. I've, I've worked hard. And that's bad enough. But it's more than just that he's rude. It's that he's missed the point. Uh, had he listened to his own faith, he might have known the story about Esau rushing out to reconcile with his brother Jacob. He might have known that he should be rushing forward just like his father to welcome his brother. But that's not what he does. He disowns his relationship with his brother. And he says, you know, I've been working like a slave and this brother's been wasting money in a foreign land with prostitutes. And he says, you know, this, he's been wasting your very life, Father. He's been wasting everything that you've given to him. And he disowns his relationship with his brother. He says to his father, not my brother, not this brother of mine. He says, this son of yours... This son of yours, he, doesn't, he can't even bring himself to acknowledge that this person is his brother. This son of yours, he won't even come outside. The younger brother, he's been welcomed back. But the older brother, you know, even the, the younger brother had cut himself off by going to a foreign land. But the older brother's cut off too. He's not in a foreign land, but he's outside the celebration. He wants to be, he, he's not, but he wants to be a million miles away and he might as well be. Because he has cut himself off from his family. He's denied the relationship with his brother and even perhaps with his father. Here again, though, the father responds to the older son with grace. Jesus tells us that the father says to him, Son, you were always with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. And again, confronting this great insult from one of his sons. The father gives the son the promise of his love and care. And he explains why they have to celebrate. We thought your brother was dead, but in fact, he's alive. And this is what the father's all about. And this is what Jesus is all about. And this is what being a Christian is about. Death turning into life and our own lives and the life of our world and the life of God's people. And it all comes from the father's self-giving love. And the parable ends there. Jesus doesn't tell us what becomes of the relationship between the father and the older son. He doesn't tell us what becomes of the relationship between these two brothers. It's left a mystery. It's unsatisfying almost. I want to know the end of the story. I want to know the answer to the riddle. But I think it's left open because it's left as an open question to us. Will we accept the grace that God is extending to us? Will we offer grace to others when we feel like we're in the right and they're in the wrong? It leaves us with the open question of how we will respond. Where do we put ourselves in this story? Perhaps some of us are younger sons. We've gone off from God and in our relationship with our families. And today is the day to start that journey back you can be confident that God will meet you as you respond to him. And if some of us are older sons, we think that we've been wronged and perhaps we have been, and we self-righteously think that God owes us something. Um, and for us, the day is, today is the day to give up on our own, our own kind of fleeing from God, our own standing outside the party, and return to the one who offers us forgiveness just like he offers the younger son forgiveness. This is a story about counting. It's a story about forgiveness, but 
It's also a story about counting. This is what one of my, the same professor I mentioned earlier uh, says this about it. Um, Our parable is less about forgiving and more about counting, making sure that everyone counts. Whom have we lost? If we don't count, maybe it's too late. This is a story about knowing. Where's the younger son? Is he off in the foreign country? Maybe we should go find him. Where's the older son? Is he welcome to the party? Maybe we need to make sure that he's invited in. It's time to take account of ourselves and ask, who in my life, who in my life can I extend the welcome of God to, to say, welcome to the party. You belong here. God wants you here. God wants us to have a relationship together that reflects who he is. That's how Christ works. Uh, Fedor Dostoevsky, a great uh, author of Crime and Punishment, Russian novelist, puts it this way. He says, at the last judgment, Christ will say to us, come you also, come drunkards, come weaklings, come children of shame. And to the wise and prudent, he will say, the, the wise and prudent will say, Lord, why do you welcome him? Welcome them. And he will say, if I welcome them, you wise men, if I welcome them, you prudent men, it is because not one of them has been judged worthy. And then we will understand it all. We will understand the gospel of grace. Lord, your kingdom come. May we begin to see God move in this way among us, even today. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us to account for those uh, from whom we are estranged. Lord, we pray that you would help us to reflect the love of the Father who welcomes the younger son and who welcomes the older son. Lord, help us to be one family all together that is a genuine testimony to the love that you have given us through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.